Heavenly Father, it has been such a blessing to get to work through the book of Acts over the past many weeks now and months. And we pray, Father, that as we finish up our study and we come almost to the end of the book, that you would be glorified in continuing to speak to us through your word. Cause us to hear what you want us to hear from this passage today. Cause us to be rightly impacted by each and every one of us. We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak through me only that uh, which you would say, and that you would, by your Holy Spirit, cause each of us to focus, to be attentive, and to worship you, to value you, and to value your word by paying close attention and by seeking to live in accordance with it. We pray, Father, that you would give each of us today ears to hear, that we would not be like the Jews who Paul indicts in this passage, who heard but didn't truly hear. We pray, Father, that we would really hear your word this morning, that you would give us sensitive hearts, responsive hearts. For anybody here in this room who does not know you yet, we pray that today, today would be their day of salvation, that they would come to know you as the Savior King that you are to all people who repent of their sin and trust in you. Please, Father, let that be the case today for any here who don't know you yet. And we pray, that, Father, that for all of those who do, that today would be a day that we're conform more to your image, specifically in light of this passage, in light of the theme of your words triumphing, in light of the theme of your gospel triumphing. We pray that you would fill each and every one of us with confidence and with hope that your word will prevail, that even when we're faced with constant with the message that we share to the lost being constantly rejected, that we know that your word will prevail. Please fill us with that confidence today. Fill us with that hope today. And we pray that you would also help us herald your gospel well, that we would take a good cue from the Apostle Paul in this last episode where he encounters the lost. And we pray that you would teach us again from it. You would make us more like him and more like you and help us become effective messengers of your word. All of these things, Father, we pray for your glory. We pray that you would do it out of your love for us, out of your love for all of those that we will impact, and we trust in your spirit to do it. We are completely dependent on your spirit to accomplish all these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Acts 28, verses 23 through 28. As you just heard, we're only two verses away from the end of the book. You'll notice there's no verse 29. That's because the best manuscripts don't have it. So after our passage this morning, verses 30 through 31, we'll cue the final song in the drama that's been unfolding before our eyes, and it's going to pull the curtain back over the stage. The final scene is Rome, around 60 AD. Rome was the capital city of the Western world, and Paul's ministry there may be a fitting conclusion to Luke's account of the early church and the spread of the gospel since the apostle had now reached the center of the non-Jewish world or at least the center of the Western world at the time. If you'll recall, Paul, our messenger of the good news to the Gentiles and non-Jews, had been resolved in the Spirit and constrained by the Holy Spirit, going back to Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20, to go to Rome. But his road to Rome was by no means an easy one. As we saw in Acts 21, when Paul had visited Jerusalem, he was rioted in the temple, he was falsely accused, and he was sent off to Caesarea for trial before Governor Felix, and then after him, Governor Festus. Paul may have been in custody for around two years since the release that he deserved was delayed by, Fe by Felix's desire for a bribe along with his and Festus's political maneuvering. And Paul, likely concerned about receiving justice from Festus, appealed his case out of Festus's hands to Caesar's court. And this doing so not only provided him with a way to receive a just verdict, a better chance of receiving a just verdict, it also provided him with a road to Rome. In order to be tried in Caesar's court, he would need to be transported to Rome. His subsequent journey to Rome was marked by a storm at sea, a shipwreck on the island of Malta, and a bite from a poisonous viper. But last week, finally, in accordance with God's plan, Paul made it to Rome. He finally made it. And when he got there, he rented his own place. He's living under house arrest. He's living with a guard. But he has his own place, 
And this is going to be Paul's life now for the next couple of years. This is how the book closes with him. Shortly after arriving in Rome, we saw last week how Paul called the local Jewish leaders together. He called them together to explain his situation to them. Perhaps he was unsure of whether his false allegations had reached their ears or not. But then look at verses 21 through 22. The Jews replied to Paul after he had explained things to him. They replied saying, quote, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. They don't know about these allegations. And they say, But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Paul's a, he's a recognized authority on this movement, and the Jewish leaders are interested in hearing his views. And so that's where our story picks up today. This is the last story in the book of Acts. We'll have a summary in verses 30 through 31 of what Paul continued to do under house arrest in Rome. But this closing episode plays out one last missionary encounter between the missionary and the lost in his mission field. It's a scene that features the heralding of the gospel and the hearing, or not hearing, of the gospel. And by God's grace, we're going to consider each of those in turn today. Point number one, heralding the gospel. And point number two, hearing the gospel. Heralding the gospel and hearing the gospel. As we'll see, this last story ends on a triumphant note. Even though the Jews did not hear, the Gentiles will hear. The gospel will prevail. And that's the theme. The gospel will triumph. The gospel will triumph. Let's start where the story starts, the heralding of the gospel. Point one, heralding the gospel. Verse 23. When the Jews had appointed a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So they set a date for their conversation with the apostle. Since Paul was under house arrest, he may not have been permitted to go to a synagogue. But apparently he was able to have people over, so they came to him. This is a Jewish audience, perhaps specifically an audience of Jewish leaders in Rome. So no Gentiles were present, we know of. I'm not sure what level of hospitality Paul was able to offer them, but he welcomes them over to his home, and it says a good number of them come. Verse 23, from morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And says he expounded to them. The word expound here means, quote, to convey information by careful elaboration or to explain what did this explanation or careful elaboration involve exactly? Or what was it accompanied by? Luke delineates two things. First, he says Paul was testifying to the kingdom of God. And second, he was trying to convince them about Jesus. So two T's that are there in the text of the ESV, testifying and trying to convince. First, he was testifying to the kingdom of God. Now, we've heard that phrase before, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was a central theme of Jesus' preaching and of Paul's preaching. We see Jesus talking about the kingdom of God in his resurrected state at the beginning of Acts. And in fact, the last verse of the book of Acts, which we'll look at next week, it says in verse 31, Paul was, quote, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ are the same two things Paul continued to proclaiming. Together they constitute an appropriate summary of Paul's teaching. And Luke could perhaps simply be using the phrase kingdom of God as a summary of Christian teaching. But even if he is, in what sense does the kingdom of God capture the Christian message well? It's a very significant concept in scripture, and I think it's one that's worthy of our consideration. 
Let me ask you for a moment. What is the kingdom of God? How would you define it? In the New Testament, the kingdom of God refers to God's reign over his people. What is the kingdom? It's God's reign over his people. Now, there's a sense in which the story of history begins with mankind living under God's loving rule. But that prosperous reign didn't last long. We rebelled against our creator. We rejected God's rule. And we chose to live under our own rule, which was really to live under the power of the ruler of this world, the ancient serpent, the devil. Each and every one of you has participated in that rebellion. We have all, without exception, chosen to be king of our own lives, to live under our own rule rather than God's rule. But God acted in human history to restore mankind to himself. In the Old Testament, God singled out Abraham from all the peoples of the world to raise up a nation for himself. Abraham's descendants would be God's people, and he would be their God, and through them, God would bless the nations. As the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, increased and multiplied and inherited the land God promised them, eventually they appointed a king to rule over them. And God made a covenant with Israel's second king, King David. He said in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, to David, he said, quote, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised David an everlasting kingdom. Now, if you know the story, you know that the people of God continued to rebel against their heavenly king. And eventually they were taken into exile by their enemies because of their sin and their idolatry. But the prophet said that one day, one day God would raise up a new king from the line of David who would restore the kingdom of Israel and reign on David's throne just as God had promised to David in the covenant of 2 Samuel 7. Isaiah the prophet prophesied in Isaiah 9, saying, quote, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, listen to what Isaiah calls him, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is what the King of God's people would be called. This child born to him is himself divine. Isaiah said, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Other prophets also spoke of the coming of this king. Zechariah said that this king would establish a kingdom over the whole earth. He said in Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Sound familiar? Verse 10, He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah also said that there would be a day when God would dwell with his people and he would invite the nations to become his people. The nations would be blessed just as God promised to Abraham in the beginning. Zechariah said in chapter 2, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh, and many nations, many nations, shall join themselves to Yahweh in that day and shall be my people." The promised kingdom of God in the Old Testament was inaugurated in the New Testament. That means it was officially initiated and installed with the coming of the king. And that king, as you know, was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He was the son promised by Isaiah, the God-man who would reign on David's throne, bringing restoration to Israel and bringing blessing to the nations. 
as the great story goes, this restoration and blessing was achieved in a most remarkable and strange and beautiful way. It came chiefly through the king's own death and resurrection. The God-man, though he lived a righteous life, was unjustly condemned on a Roman cross. And what appeared to be the king's defeat was in fact his path to victory. For on that cross, just as Isaiah had prophesied centuries beforehand, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that we deserved for our rebellion against God was poured out on him. And by his wounds, we were healed. The king sacrificed himself for his people, heroically facing their hell in their place. And the king also liberated his people from the oppression of sin. He united us to himself so that our rebellious hearts could die with him, so that we could be set free from the tyrannical rule of the devil, and so that through the king's resurrection from the dead three days later, we could be raised to life with him as children of God, with hearts that willingly submit to God's reign. And so the good news is that King Jesus has established God's rule over the hearts of his people. He established God's rule over the hearts of his people. How? Through his death and resurrection. He forgives us our sin. He defeats our hell. He changes us from rebels to citizens of God's kingdom. He has restored us under his reign And God has exalted him to heaven, to his right hand, to reign as king forever. And this great restoration is announced now to all people who repent of their rebellion and turn to Jesus as their savior and king, who trust alone in him. His kingdom has already come, but there is another sense in which the kingdom is not yet consummated. His reign has not yet been fully realized. One day, as the scriptures say, the king of heaven will return. John visualizes it as Jesus riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him to do away with evil forever and to put the nations under his feet. All creation will be restored and all those who are united to the king will be gloriously resurrected just as he was to dwell with him and reign with him for all of eternity. What is the kingdom of God? It is the reign of God over his people. The reign of God over his people. Paul testified to the kingdom of God. And it says he was trying to convince them about Jesus. See, Jesus obviously is inseparable from the kingdom of God. Just as the charge which was written above Jesus' head on the cross had ironically declared, Jesus was the king of the Jews. He was the promised ruler over God's people, the one who would bring restoration to his people and blessing to the nations. He was what was called in Hebrew the Messiah. In Greek, that word is translated the Christ. Do you know what those words mean, what Messiah and Christ mean? They mean anointed one, the anointed one. Jesus was the anointed one through whom God would establish and exercise his glorious reign. So, We are not surprised to find that as Paul testifies about the kingdom of God, he is also trying to convince them about Jesus. He is trying to convince the Jews that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the anointed one of Israel. He is the promised Savior King, the divine figure through whom God would rescue and restore his people and establish and exercise his reign. Paul is seeking to persuade them about Jesus. How does he do this? Verse 23, it says he was trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He was heralding the gospel to a Jewish audience and the Jews regarded the Old Testament as the word of God and so he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Perhaps he even discussed some of the same passages that you just heard read. Paul's ministry to them involved testifying to the truth and trying to convince them of it. Testifying to the truth 
and trying to convince them of it. I think his heralding is instructive for us here as it has been elsewhere in the book of Acts. There's two practical takeaways I'd like for us to consider from this final evangelism story today. First, like we've talked about before from the pulpit, our expounding of the good news ought to involve more than merely testifying. We must also, as Paul does, quote, try to convince our hearers about Jesus. Paul's heralding consisted of testifying and trying to convince, as should ours too. We addressed this in a previous passage, but I think it's worth reiterating briefly since I think that this may be a weakness in our, in our own evangelism. Perhaps we're too content with simply stating the facts of the gospel and leaving it at that, testifying to the truth, but not trying hard to convince people of it. Like we talked about in our apologetics class on Wednesday night, I think it's foolish of us to expect people to automatically believe the gospel, right? And like I think I shared in the class, to modify an example given by J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig, if a Muslim were to approach you, if they were to walk up to you and share the message of Islam and then walk away, would you believe it because of that? No, of course not. Almost certainly not. Why not? Well, because we typically don't believe, we don't accept new beliefs without a reason to do so. Is that a bad thing? No, of course not. That's the way that God created us to be as rational beings. That's the way we're supposed to operate. But how often do we testify to the truth without really trying hard to convince people of it. To be sure, that's not to say that no good can come from simply, find, uh, from simply testifying to the gospel, right? Of course, God can use even a bare announcement of the good news to save someone. And the gospel, unlike the message of any false religion, is itself a powerful and compelling message. Furthermore, it's always good to scatter the seed of the word. And if that's all we have the opportunity to do sometimes, and so be it. We want as many people to hear the good news as possible. But we don't just want people to hear it. We want people to believe it. We want people to hear and believe. We want people to be persuaded of it. And thankfully, there's more that we can do to help people believe than simply testifying to the truth. It's good to testify. We need to testify. But we haven't done all we can to help them yet if we've only testified. And as a result, I don't think that we should be too content with ourselves if we still have the opportunity to help them more. As Paul does here in Rome, and as we've seen him do before, we can try to convince them of the truth. This is one of the reasons why apologetics is important. Apologetics is about giving reasons for what we believe. How well can you convince people that Jesus is the Christ? How well do you reason with others about Jesus? Learn apologetics. Go back and watch or rewatch the Wednesday night sessions that we've had a chance to work through together. Really internalize and practice sharing some of those arguments we've learned. Study them for the sake of the loved ones in your life who don't believe the gospel yet. You can also come out and actually do apologetics and evangelism with us when we go out to do the public theology show. Doing it is one of the best ways to learn. And even if you're not comfortable doing it yet, you can come just to listen to us as we have real conversations with people about Christ. The point is that we can do more to help the lost in our lives than simply explaining the facts. Testify to the truth, yes, but as Paul does, try to convince them of it too. Heralding the gospel should consist of testifying and trying to convince them of the truth. One other takeaway from Paul's final evangelism story. It says he expounded to them from morning till evening. From morning till evening. That's a long time. A long time. In other words, this wasn't an encounter where Paul blurted out the gospel as fast as he could and in as abbreviated as a form as possible, hoping that they wouldn't be annoyed with him before he finally made it to the end of the spiel. This was an encounter where Paul really took the time to minister the gospel well to them. Again, testifying to the truth and trying to convince them of it. Doing those two things effectively often takes time. It takes time. This may be another weakness in our evangelism today. Being too brief. I think 
In our church, we've practiced doing 15-second gospel presentations before. Maybe that was just with the youth. And that may be a helpful exercise to you know, distill down the core elements of the message that we need to get across to people. But hopefully, we have a desire to spend more than 15 seconds in conversation with people about Jesus. Again, we're glad to scatter the word broadly, even if it's in brief forms, interjecting it here and there in conversations. But we should also have appropriate expectations of what will come from that. Normally, ordinarily, it takes time to explain and demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel well. This is especially the case for people who have very different worldviews. Paul expounded all day, all day to the Jewish leaders in Rome. I'm sure he could have quickly communicated the bare minimum that they needed to hear in order to get saved. But that doesn't seem to be Paul's goal. He seemed focused instead not on ministering to them the least possible, but on ministering to them really well. See the difference? Our question similarly shouldn't be, what's the bare minimum I need to say so that this person can get saved? Our desire should be to help them understand and believe the gospel. How long are your evangelism interactions typically? If they're always very brief and short, what might be the reason for that? Perhaps we have a different mindset than the apostle. Are we more focused on getting the bare minimum across or are we rightly focused on ministering to them as well as we can? Do you reason long with people? Verse 23, from morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So two practical takeaways from Paul's last missionary encounter in the book. Number one, as we've seen before, in addition to testifying to the truth, try to convince people of the truth. And number two, spend the time it takes to do those things well. Spend the time it takes to do those well. Once again, we've seen the missionary par excellence, heralding the good news to the lost in his mission field. Point number one, heralding the gospel. Now, how did the Jews respond to Paul's heralding? What was the result of Paul's all day testifying about the kingdom and trying to convince them about Jesus? What was the response? Point number two, hearing the gospel. Hearing the gospel. Verse 24, some were convinced by what Paul said, but others disbelieved. The response was mixed. Some were persuaded, others were not. Now, just because it says they were convinced doesn't necessarily mean they were saved, right? Although it wouldn't be surprising if they were. And the same is true for us, by the way. We might give someone's reasons to believe the gospel, and perhaps they will be convinced by it. But simply believing the truth doesn't save anyone. You can believe that God exists. You can believe the Bible is God's word. You can believe that Jesus came, died, rose again, and was God in the flesh, and you can still be damned. Believing things doesn't save anybody. We're saved by repenting and trusting in Jesus. And we only do that if God makes us alive first. We must be born again in order to respond righteously to the truth of the gospel that we've believed. Now it says the others disbelieved. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. This is an important verse because even if the rejection of Jesus was the most common response by the Jewish leadership, it was not obviously the response of all the Jews. And this fact is important to keep in mind given what Paul is about to say in verses 25 through 27. Let's, let's actually take a look at that now. Look, Starting at verse 25. It says, disagreeing among themselves, the Jews were not in harmony with each other about Jesus. They departed after Paul had made one statement. Either Paul ended on this note before they left, or they left because of this statement. What did Paul say? Quote, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, quote, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, live what we just saw in verse 24, Paul certainly not indicting all Jews for being hard-hearted. Some of them had believed, just as many Jews before them had believed. In fact, Paul himself was a Jew who followed Jesus. But Paul is indicting here either official Judaism or the majority of the Jewish people, both of whom had failed to embrace Jesus as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the Christ, as their promised Savior King. He charges them with being insensitive to the gospel, just like their fathers were insensitive to the prophets before them. Verse 25, Paul said, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Do you know what chapter this is from in Isaiah? It's from Isaiah 6. You say, Isaiah 6, that, that sounds familiar. Yes, it's a, it's a famous chapter in the book. It's where Isaiah is called into the throne room of God, and he sees the skirt of God's robe filling the temple, and the seraphim hovering next to the throne. And one says, Holy, holy, holy. And the threshold shakes from its voice and the temple is filled with smoke. And Isaiah counts himself as a dead man because he recognizes his own impurity. And then one of the angels touches his lips with burning coals from the altar and tells him that his sin has been atoned for. And then in verse 8, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, the famous words, here I am, send me. And perhaps that's where your familiarity with the story ends. Well, the story doesn't end there. In the next verse, it says what God sent Isaiah to say. And that's the verse that Paul starts quoting from here. Paul's quotation follows closely a Greek translation of the Old Testament available at the time called the Septuagint, which doesn't translate this passage as precisely as we could, but it's still similar. He says in verse 26, this is corresponding to verse 9 of Isaiah 6. Paul quotes Isaiah saying, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. This is what Isaiah was sent to say by God. Now, this is certainly a strange message. It's like Isaiah is saying, the message I'm bringing to you is that you won't get the message I'm bringing to you. Saying you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. One commentator put it like this, quote, The prophet is sent to his people with the message that there is no possibility of their understanding what they hear or seeing what they look at. The built-in failure of the message is the content of it. The built-in failure of the message is the content of it. In other words, the message is that you won't get the message. Perhaps even if they got the meaning of the message, they wouldn't get the importance of it or the truthfulness of it. Why won't they get the message? Verse 27, For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Their eyes they have closed. Did you catch that? They have closed their own eyes. They have done this to themselves. They are responsible for their inability to see. Why can't they see? They cannot see because they will not see. One scholar said, quote, the eyes, the ears, and the heart were the three organs of perception. And the heart, in Hebrew thought, was considered the organ of understanding and will. So Israel's refusal to hear God's message is depicted in terms of them 
intentionally doling their means of perception, their eyes, their ears, their hearts. They cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot understand. They cannot perceive the truth because they will not. They have dulled their means of perception. Instead of being sensitive to their sin or sensitive to the truth, they are insensitive. They are sinful and stubborn and set in their ways. If they had not done this, if they had not hardened themselves, Verse 27 says they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. If they had gotten the message, if they had perceived the truth, they would have turned. They would have changed directions. See, the sensible response would have been to turn from their sin, to turn from their rebellion and to turn to righteousness, to turn to God. That's what it means to repent, by the way, to acknowledge our sin and to turn away from it to righteousness. What does God do for all those who turn? It says he heals them. He makes them whole. He cures them from their sin and from all of its effects. He restores them to himself through Jesus. But the Jews, it says, were insensitive to God's word. And this criticism of God's people, Israel, is an old criticism. The message of Isaiah was that the Jews would hear, but not really hear. That message was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, and it continued to be fulfilled in the Jewish rejection of God's word in the New Testament. In fact, it's fascinating. Part of this passage from Isaiah is referenced in all four gospel accounts. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's applied to Jesus' use of parables and the people's lack of understanding. The gospel writers applied in different ways, but that's the main idea. And interestingly, the reference to this passage in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, is also connected to the parable of the soils. You remember that parable? In Mark's account, the parable is that the seed is the word And the sower scatters the seed. Some of it falls on a path where it gets eaten by birds that represents Satan taking it away. Some of the seed of God's word falls on rocky ground where it withers under the sun. That represents hardship or persecution. And some of the seed falls on soil where it gets choked out from being unfruitful by thorns. That represents the cares of this world and worldly desires. But some of that seed, some of it, fell on good soil that produced great fruit. This parable in the synoptics occurs in the same context that Jesus applies Isaiah's prophecy to his own situation, to the Jews hearing, but not really hearing. Perhaps one of the ways that this parable relates to Isaiah's prophecy is that the seed of God's word will often fall on people that it does not ultimately end in fruitfulness for. As with the Jews, it was scattered among them and yet did not bear the fruit it should have. In John's gospel, John also applies part of Isaiah's prophecy to the unbelief of the people, perhaps specifically the Jews, despite the signs that Jesus performed. So in the New Testament, this message of Isaiah about Israel's insensitivity to God's message in Isaiah's day was applied to the Jews who heard the message heralded by Jesus and by the apostle Paul in their own day. The seed of the word was scattered among them, but it did not produce fruit. There are two ways to hear the gospel. You can hear it, or you can hear it. There's a difference between hearing and really hearing. Unfortunately, some of the Jewish leaders in Acts 28 heard God's word, but they didn't hear his word. Now, hearing this passage from Isaiah to them should have constituted a warning for the Jews. And I'd say it should constitute a warning for anybody who hears this prophecy today. If you close your eyes, this is the warning, if you close your eyes to the truth, you will not experience God's healing. Don't harden yourself to the gospel. Don't be insensitive and unresponsive to it. 
Comprehend the message. Believe the message and respond sensibly to the message. Turn from your sin to God. Be healed. Now, as we know from elsewhere in Scripture, Israel's rejection of the apostles' message, just like Israel's rejection of the prophets' message before them, was all part of God's plan. He accomplished his purposes even through their insensitivity and even through their hardness of heart. Their response certainly grieved God, but God, in his sovereignty, accomplished his purposes through it nonetheless. One of those purposes was the gospel going to the Gentiles. Earlier in Acts 13 and again in Acts 28, the Jews opposed Paul. The opposition of the Jews was the occasion for Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Reaching the nations had always been part of God's plan, but it was right for the news of Israel's Messiah, who fulfilled the promises of Israel, to be announced to Israel first. They were first in line to receive the gospel to Jews, but their unreceptiveness to it provided the occasion for the gospel to go forth to the Gentiles. That was one purpose, but God also says there's another purpose. In Romans 11, where Paul actually may have quoted the same prophecy from Isaiah, part of the same prophecy earlier on in the chapter, in Romans 11, Paul said, quote, Did Israel stumble in order that they might fall, in order that they might never recover, in other words? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. And then he says later on, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So another purpose God accomplished through their insensitivity was that the Jews would see the salvation that had gone to the Gentiles, be jealous of it, and then seek to be saved themselves. So God, in his sovereignty, is accomplishing his good purposes despite their rebellion, despite their rejection of the Savior. But as good as those purposes are, that doesn't actually seem to be the point for Luke here in this passage, or at least not the main one. Instead, after Paul quotes from Isaiah 6, he says in verse 28, look with me, look at uh, the text with me with your eyes. Verse 28, Paul said, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. They will listen. Did you hear that? The majority of Israel, the people of God, rejected God's salvation. But the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they will receive it. The Jews and the Gentiles are contrasted in their response to the gospel. One commentator discussed how the idea of hearing is prominent in this episode. In verse 22, the Jews said, what to Paul? They said, verse 22, we desire to hear from you what your views are. And then in the passage that Paul quotes from Isaiah 6, Isaiah talks about hearing three times. But it's about how they, verse 26, indeed hear but never understand. And verse 27, how with their ears they can barely hear. They're hearing but they're not really hearing. Because if they truly did, verse 27, hear with their ears, if they truly heard with their ears, it would have led to what? Their healing. And so the final time Luke's talk, Luke talks about hearing is in verse 28. The Jews did not hear, but the Gentiles will hear. In the ESV it's translated, they will listen, but in Greek it's the same word as the other four times. It says, they will hear. The Jews may reject the gospel, but the Gentiles will truly hear it. They will be sensitive to the truth. They will turn. They will be healed. It had been prophesied that the Gentiles would receive Jesus. And Paul's experience had confirmed that. In the course of his ministry, Paul witnessed non-Jews responding to the gospel, even when Jews would not. One scholar said, quote, for Luke, verse 28 is not so much a theological proposition as a statement of fact. 
Luke could not fail to observe that the Greeks were pressing into the church. The Jews were not. The church was filling up with Gentiles. The Gentiles were listening. They were responding to the gospel. The fact, this fact, the Gentiles will listen, even though the Jews did not. It may be striking a triumphant chord here for Luke. Or at least a triumphant chord in the book of Acts, we could say. The same scholar commenting on what he seems as a theme, what he sees as a theme in the book of Acts, said, quote, Nothing can or will prevent the spread of the gospel. The most favored nation, who of all races should have welcomed the fulfillment of their hope most gladly, they may reject God's offer of salvation. Others will take it up. You refuse to listen, but they will hear. Luke has his own kind of triumphalism, but it's the proper triumphalism of the Word. The book of Acts vividly displays for us the triumphalism of the gospel. The Word of God will prevail. You can persecute the believers of the good news, but the news will still spread. You can imprison the messengers of the good news, but the good news can't be imprisoned. As Paul said to Timothy, the Word is not bound. Israel, at least as represented by official Judaism, may reject the salvation of their Messiah, but the Gentiles will receive it. The gospel will triumph. The gospel will triumph. And I see no reason to think that the gospel will not continue to triumph today. It is the same gospel. It is the same message of the same salvation offered by the same king to all people. Doesn't God still intend to save people through the gospel today? If he does, which I think he does, then we can have confidence that just as the gospel went forth in the book of Acts and some truly heard it, so too will some truly hear it today. Many will reject it. Perhaps most will reject it. Perhaps even those we'd most expect to receive it, like the Jews then, will reject it. But some will receive it. The seed we scatter will fall on paths where it gets eaten by birds or on rocky ground or among thorns, all places where it will not be fruitful. But some of it will fall on good soil where it will sprout up, as Jesus says in Mark 4.20, and produce, quote, grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. That will happen. I need to hear that. I need to be encouraged by the triumph of the gospel. Perhaps you've shared the gospel with many people, and maybe you're like me and you haven't done the greatest job every time you've shared the gospel with people. Maybe you haven't seen much fruit come from it. Maybe you haven't seen any fruit come from it. Maybe all you've experienced is the rejection of the message. Do not give up. Don't be anecdotal or short-sighted in your perspective and then become discouraged. Instead, base your confidence on the testimony that we have before us in the book of Acts. The gospel will triumph. As long as God intends to save people, the gospel will be heard. Some will be sensitive to the truth. Some will turn from their ways. Some will be healed. The gospel will triumph. And so pray with that confidence. Preach with that confidence. And even in the face of apparent failure, even if all we've seen is the rejection of the message of people hearing but not really hearing, the gospel will triumph. We know some will truly hear. So herald with confidence, knowing that it will be heard. This is the last story in the book of Acts. The Jews wanted to hear Paul's views, but many of them failed to truly hear it. One more time, we got to see our apostle herald the gospel well, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus all day long. That baton has been passed down throughout church history now. It's been passed down to you and to me. 
We carry out that same great mission in the 21st century and like the apostle, we too must faithfully herald the gospel. We must testify. We must try to convince. Spend the time it takes to do those effectively. Reason well and reason long with the lost in our mission field. And regardless of how often the gospel is rejected by those we share it with, we must never give up. Do not stop praying. Do not stop preaching. The book of Acts has taught us that the word will prevail. Be confident in that. Be confident in the triumph of the gospel. It has triumphed and it will triumph. Most of the people you share it with may reject it, but others will receive it. The gospel will triumph. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the encouraging testimony we have in the book of Acts. Even when our experience is filled with the rejection of the good news, we know, Father, that many heard it then, that the word went forth then, it could not be stopped, it did prevail then, and we know that as long as you will continue to save people, the gospel will continue to triumph. We pray, Father, that we would not give up in ministering the gospel, that we would faithfully pray for the lost, that we would herald the gospel to the lost. We pray that we would do so with the confidence that your word will bear fruit among some. The seed will fall on some soil where it will be fruitful. Please, Father, give us that confidence. We We thank you, Lord, for the ways that that word has borne fruit in our own lives. We pray that it would bear more. And we pray that you would make us like Paul, that you would make us effective messengers of your gospel, that you would make us good missionaries here in this mission field. Help us to not only testify to the truth, help us to try to convince people of it. Make us good at convincing people of the truth. And we pray, Father, that you would make us willing to spend the time it takes to do that well, to seek out opportunities where we can spend time with people, reasoning with them about Jesus. Give us hearts of love for the lost. Motivate us to do these things, to try to convince others, to spend the time it takes. Pray, Father, that you would do this for your glory in us, that you would reflect yourself in us the same way you reflected yourself in the Apostle Paul and bring honor to your name. And we also pray, Father, that you would do this so that some people in our lives would believe that just as some of the Jews in Rome believed Paul, that they were persuaded by Paul, that some people in our lives would be persuaded of the gospel and that you would be pleased to make them alive, that they would repent, that they would turn, that they would be healed of their sin. They would come under your kingdom, come under your reign. Pray, Father, that you would expand your kingdom here in this area and that you would cause none of us to have hard, unbelieving hearts, that we would be sensitive to the gospel and that you would make many around us sensitive to the gospel. Just as the Gentiles were then, do that here in Silicon Valley. Make many sensitive to the gospel. Save many here. Pray all these things, Father, in your name. Amen.